Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Thursday, December 1st, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we continue our theme from the December 2005 edition of Critical Connections, focused on helping the critical care clinician provide high-quality end-of-life care. We will be speaking with J. Randall Curtis, MD, MPH. Dr. Curtis is a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Harborview Medical Center and the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. In addition, he is the director of the End-of-Life Research Program at the University of Washington, a large, highly prolific research entity currently funded by grants from the NIH, including the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, the National Institute on Nursing Research, as well as the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Curtis is a true academic leader in the field of -of end-of-life care for the critically ill patient. For over a decade, he has published numerous peer-reviewed publications on end-of-life, as well as book chapters and books. His publications are extremely innovative and highly thought-provoking. Given his background as not only a board-certified pulmonary critical care physician, but as someone with an MPH in epidemiology, as well as having received further specialized training in outcomes research as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar, He is uniquely qualified to shed light on what can often be the most difficult part of caring for the critically ill patient, providing high-quality care at the end of life. His article in the December 2005 edition of Critical Connections focuses on the role of family conferences in end-of-life care in the ICU. It is truly an honor to be speaking with him today on the iCritical Care podcast. Thank you very much, Randy, for being with us today. Thank you. I wanted to begin by having you share with us a little bit of uh, your life story, your career path, and how you ended up uh, where you are now. From what uh, I understand, doing some reading, you did an internal medicine residency, followed by, I guess, a Robert Wood Johnson fellowship and an MPH, and then you did pulmonary critical care. And I was wondering if you could share with us some of the details, how you decided on that particular career path, were there particular mentors or specific life events that uh, focused you in this direction? Sure. I, uh, when I started uh, my training, uh, it was actually difficult to get uh, formalized training in the methods of clinical research, uh, clinical epidemiology, biostatistics, and health services research through pulmonary critical care uh, fellowships. Uh, so I actually um, applied for and received the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program uh, Fellowship as a way to get that training uh, and was able to combine that with my Uh, pulmonary and critical care fellowship at the University of Washington. So although they were sequential, they were actually uh, combined. I think, uh, you know, interestingly, since that time, for young people interested in doing clinical research, 
that really has changed. And now there are a number of pulmonary critical care fellowship training programs around the country that do offer uh, formalized training in, in uh, clinical research methods. And was the clinical research uh, methods and outcome research, were you even then focused on some of these ethical issues? Or can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was. I, I, um, I actually got interested in, in these kinds of issues around end-of-life care uh, as a medical student. Uh, went through medical school at, in Baltimore during the late 80s at Hopkins. And uh, at that time, the HIV-AIDS epidemic was really kind of uh, developing full speed, and we were taking care of a lot of young people with uh, suddenly facing a terminal illness. And that got me interested in, in trying to find a way to help them through that and, and do a better job of taking care of them. And then through my fellowship training, I had the mentorship of of our program director at the time, uh, Len Hudson, who was very interested in this area, very supportive of me, uh, even though his own research is more on the clinical epidemiology of ARDS and lung injury, uh, he was tremendously supportive of my interest in this area and and served as a, a key mentor for me. One of the other areas that I thought was interesting when I was trying to read about you was, again, where pulmonary critical care can be so focused on the technical aspects of getting people through their critical illness. And I was I was fascinated by reading about sort of your mapping of outcomes research analysis techniques onto these areas of medical ethics and end-of-life issues. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it's sort of been challenging at times as well because there are times when the data uh, and uh, that you can gather is not the most important uh, aspect of it. Uh, but it's been an area that I really enjoyed being involved in. One of the other areas that we were going to focus on next in the interview, again to provide a little bit more breadth, uh, was on family conferences. Uh, and again, your article published in Critical Connections discusses this to some degree, but I really wanted to spend a little time and go over some of your recent papers, if I could. Um, sure. The, the, the three papers that I had in mind just to share with the members of SCCM, one was published in July 2004 in Critical Care Medicine, and this was entitled Family Satisfaction with Family Conferences about End-of-Life Care in the Intensive Care Unit. Increased Proportion of Family Speech is Associated with Increased Satisfaction. That was one where sort of, and again, I'm making sort of sweeping generalizations, but the big picture from that one, as, as you discussed, was it appeared in this study that A, doctors spend a lot of time talking, and B, the less time they were talking, the more satisfaction there was from families, if I, if I got that right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And then the second one was entitled, this was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in April of 05, Missed Opportunities During Family Conferences About End-of-Life Care in the Intensive Care Unit. And then the third one uh, was one that you said is in press in critical care medicine, focusing on physician behaviors associated with increased satisfaction of families. And so why don't you provide a little bit of background um, first on maybe how your uh, end-of-life research program developed at the University of Washington and how you specifically came up with this process of uh, tape recording the phone interviews. It sounds like it was at multiple hospitals, a lot of work, and maybe you could share with the members of SCCM some of the details of how that all has come about and what that's like. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. The, the research program has really developed largely initially through my own uh, research interest and going out and getting grants. Uh, but in, in the process of doing that, I've uh, developed a, a core group of uh, collaborators and staff who are really terrific and who really 
in fact, do the bulk of the hard work involved in getting these research projects done. And I've found that bringing them together under the rubric of this program has helped us to keep our focus uh, on this area and to continue to be able to uh, write grants that will support the work that we're trying to do. And I, and I saw from your website you've got a large number of, of it's nearly 20 people in your, in your group right now. You also work with, I guess, residents and, and fellows as well? That's right, yeah. There are usually... At any given time, three or four residents or fellows who want to do uh, some research and get some research training uh, and elect to work with this program. And in fact, one of the papers that you cited in Critical Care Medicine from 2005 was actually a, a resident who did a research elective that led that effort. And, and the one that's in press is a, was a, is a, a, f- a former fellow, soon-to-be faculty member here, uh, who led that. Why don't we start out with that article in Critical Care Medicine, since that seemed to be, I guess, one of the, I know there was one, I guess, previous to that, but this was sort of one of the major ones focusing on these uh, tape-recorded family conferences. And it sounds like that was a a big challenge. And and do you want to share some personal stories about in terms of interacting with the practicing clinicians about tape-recording that or some families, their reactions? it was was a lot of work to get this study done. And and as usual, the bulk of it was, was done by my staff. And my staff were just terrific at being able to communicate with uh, nurses and physicians and, and family members and uh, around getting consent for this. We identified all eligible family conferences at four hospitals. That in itself was a, was a feat, but uh, the biggest challenge was once that we identified a family conference was to try to consent everybody involved uh, to be in the study. We found that, that uniformly physicians and nurses were very supportive of this work. They, they seemed to think it was important. They were willing to have these themselves audiotaped in these conferences. That, that part of it, I think, went very well. And, I, and I, I attribute that to the fact that I think that a lot of uh, physicians and nurses practicing in critical care units realize that this is a difficult topic and that work in this area is important if we're going to figure out how we can do it better. Of all the family conferences that we identified, we were only able to actually enroll and audio tape a little less than half of them. Um, and about half of the time, the family said, you know, we're not interested in this. And the other half of the time, actually, even before we got to the families, the, the, a nurse or a doctor said, boy, you know, great study, happy to participate, but not this family. Uh, this family is either too distraught or too upset or too angry. Uh, and so there is some selection bias in, uh, in these studies. Uh, and there's no there's no way around something like that, right? No, that's right. I mean, there's no ethical way around around that. You have to work with people who are willing to participate. Right. And so that's that's a reality, and it's particularly difficult, I think, in research around end of life care. Do you think there was, or there must have been some component where you were concerned that people might have changed their behaviors because they knew they were being recorded? Or how did uh, I you... get asked that question a lot, and I actually, my feeling is that for the most part, no. Um, I think that in general, uh, clinicians try to do their best in these conferences. Right. And I also, my experience, I was actually a subject in this study. I feel, felt that if I was going to ask my colleagues to do this, I should do it as well. And, and I certainly felt that, you know, I was aware of the tape recorder for the first 30 seconds or so. But then once you get into these, you know, complex and difficult discussions, the fact that the tape recorder there is there kind of leaves your mind. Right. So I, my, although I don't have any data to support this, my personal view is that 
I think this is pretty uh, likely to be the way these conferences really run. I don't think people were affected by the by the audio recordings. And I remember you were, you said in one of your papers that the potential for uh, body language and potentially videotaping them in the future, which seemed very reasonable to me to really provide the third dimension because of a lot of the uh, you right. know issues there. Yeah, we opted not to do that because I thought at the time that that that, that would be a real uh, extra step that we'd be asking people to do a lot more and they'd be much less likely to be willing to be videotaped, particularly families at this difficult time. Um, I don't know if that's true or not um, because I didn't try it, but that was my concern. A couple questions that I had about this first article were two. was One was that it appeared that the overall uh, satisfaction, according to your scale, from what I could glean from the paper, seemed rather high. And another personal question I had for you was um, many times I I would imagine... I wouldn't know how satisfied patients could possibly be is that these are this is a lot of times as you point out in your articles this is really sort of giving bad news it's giving people sort of surprising bad news and I just wanted your thoughts on that going in, into the studies were you surprised by how high by how high the rankings were I was not uh, very surprised by that because it's just a reality of family and or and or patient satisfaction research is that People are people tend to give very high ratings to physicians that are taking care of themselves or their loved ones, and I think part of that is that in general, most patients and families are relatively satisfied. But I think another part of it is that that it's difficult for people to rate their doctors and nurses poorly when they depend on them so much. Right. There's kind of a cognitive uh, issue that goes on there. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I think that the, the mean and even the median ratings give you a false impression that if you look at the scattergrams, that although in general people are satisfied, there are family members who are rating this much lower, and, and that those lower ratings are what drives the associations that we, what we found. Um, were you able to look at, from what I, I thought from your papers, they tended to be medical ICU patients, or is that incorrect? No, it was a combination of medical and surgical. Uh, we didn't have enough uh, patients or families uh, to be able to compare, really, the, the the conferences in the surgical ICU versus medical ICU, but it did involve both. Right. Um, I'd like to, if that's all right with you, move on to this uh, the more recent paper published in April '05 on missed opportunities. I thought sure. that was an absolutely, absolutely fascinating, and I keep using the word thought-provoking, but I guess that's why you write these, right? So... Um, <laughs> so what I'd like to do is to sort of summarize you again, looking at um, this very hard work of, of tape recording end of life conferences or family conferences, most of which had a component of end of life in them. And you divided, uh, you were uh, concerned about what you described as missed opportunities. And you described them and categorized them into three ways. And I'm quoting from your paper, missed opportunities to listen and respond to family members, missed opportunities to acknowledge and address emotions, and missed opportunities to explain key tenets of medical ethics and palliative care. And I was wondering, uh, I'm going to want to discuss some of these specific and fascinating issues uh, in the paper, but were there any general comments that you wanted to make about how you ended up coming up with these major categories? Sure. Um, You know, in the prior work and and one of the other papers that we'll talk about that's coming out soon, we focused on family satisfaction as our marker of quality. Uh, But in this paper, we wanted to take a very different approach. Um, Family satisfaction, I think, is an important and valuable marker of quality, but I don't think it's the only marker. 
um, for reasons that you mentioned, sometimes you know we may have to do things that may not be associated with family satisfaction. And also because families tend to be very satisfied, and it may be hard to find important differences. So in this paper, we the, the goal was to have the investigative group, which included physicians and nurses, as well as non-clinicians, health services researchers and anthropologists, look at these and look for um, markers of quality. When I started this project, I assumed I would be able to rate all of these conferences from, you know, very uh, poor to excellent and then divide them into these sort of quality categories. Um, to my surprise, actually, that, that was not the case. That um, in almost every single one of these conferences, there were things that the clinicians did really well, and there were things that they, that they missed and that, that they didn't do as well. And, and in that realization, we, we moved towards looking for these things that we call missed opportunities, which I think occurred in, in pretty much everybody's conferences. Well, and I'd like to, to use that as a segue into a discussion as an intensivist. And again, I thought it was fantastic that you actually transcribed some of the conferences into your paper. And I'm going to start with uh, one that I read that at first glance, I thought the doctors did a really great job. And I wanted to ask you your opinion. So it was listening and responding to family member comments. So the family said, okay, is there a way in the next couple of days to find out, and I may have missed this, but to find out if there is brain damage? And the physician wrote, oh, actually, we examine the patient twice a day, at least once in the morning and once in the evening. And when the person is in the intubated condition, we give them some medicine to keep them sedated, whether they are unconscious or not. Because when you have the tube inside you, it's very uncomfortable. And during that period, when you do the neuro exam, it's not reliable. So at least twice a day, we take the medicine off, and that's how we test brain function. And I thought that was great. That would be the kind of way I would be teaching my fellows to discuss with a family. But I completely understand your point, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, is you say sometimes doctors don't answer the questions directly. And what recommendations would you give? Oftentimes, there are questions that we can't you can answer them, but if I say yes or no, and then either either way I'm wrong, I would rather answer the, the question to the family member that, you know, we're not sure yet, but this is what we do to assess it each and every day. And I just, it, that's not a ridiculous question, is it? No, no, not at all. I, I think uh, I think this is a tough area. And I think that the quote that you read is, is, is a good example of, of just that, 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 and it's hard to tell in this little snippet, but in reading the entire conference, it's very clear that what the family is asking is, are we going to be able to find out if my loved one, when are we going to be able to find out if my loved one is going to have significant brain damage that's going to affect their quality of life? And the physicians answer a very technical medical question, not that question about this person, but a technical medical question about how we assess brain function. Because I think that's, that's, that's our... You know that's our fallback. That's what we're used to. But instead, if the physician had said, "Well, what you know, what do you mean by that? What are you, you know, what what what's behind your question? Do you want to know if this person is going to be able to live independently? Are you worried about him being able to go back and play golf because that's the most important thing in his life?" If we know that information, then we can actually provide an answer to the question that the family member has. And and you raise the important issue of uncertainty. Sometimes we don't know. And I think that we really have to develop a better language and and ability to discuss uncertainty with family members. You know, we're 
we're good at discussing it with our fellows and our residents, but we don't have a good language for discussing it with family members so that they'll understand. Well, it, it leads to a topic that I wanted to address with you later, but maybe right now is, you know, personally, as I've gained more experience as an intensivist, I'm more comfortable telling a family it isn't that I don't know, but that it isn't known right. whether or not your family member will be getting better. But it's very tough, and I remember personally it was very challenging, especially when you're first starting out and you're trying to gain trust with family members to say to a family member, I don't know if your family member will, be, will regain neurologic function. Right. No, I think that that's right. And I think it's, um, particularly when we have that kind of uncertainty, you know, we have to develop a, a language and, and, a, and an ability to, to talk about it openly with, with family. But you still feel from, from your publications and your experience that, that doctors should try and not cover up, not answering a question with a sort of technical uh, jargon? Is that sort of some of the points you're trying to make in, in yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I also think that, that, I think that sometimes some physicians use uncertainty as a crutch for not, for not uh, being clear in their communication. And I think that even that there are different kinds of uncertainty. If we're talking about one in a hundred, that's very different than, you know, a situation where, there's a reasonable chance that they'll have full recovery, and it's just too early to tell. Right. Um, and then the second area that you focused in on that, I again, I, I thought it was incredibly reasonable and very, very important, is acknowledging or addressing emotions. And this snippet was focusing in on, again, someone where there had been um, an intracranial hemorrhage, and the family kept pointing out that, uh, that isn't this sad? That he's and the physician keeps pointing out, and again I'm quoting: he had a severe infection. Our best guess is that he got infected from one of the tubes or lines. And the family says, "Isn't that sad?" And the physician says, "It's a common complication." It's it's often very difficult when you're focused in as a critical care clinician, as you're obviously well aware on a lot of the technical aspects of you know, does the line need to be changed? Does the patient have a pneumonia? To focus in on, well, yes, it's sad. The whole thing is horribly sad. <laughs> Right, right. No, I think that's that's exactly right, and and I think, uh, and yet, if, when you read this transcript or or listen to it, it's really clear that the family is looking for the physician simply to acknowledge that, simply to say yes, this is really sad, so that they'll know that their loved one is being cared by somebody, cared for by somebody who understands the situation and cares about the person in the bed. The last area I thought was incredibly important where you described explaining key tenets of medical ethics and palliative care. And uh, this is sort of, I guess, my third uh, sort of end of life podcast. And every one of them has been focused. And I know you wrote a book on this topic, the transition, the transition from aggressive care to more of a palliative care. And I, I would imagine that this would be one of the most important parts uh, of your paper, getting clinicians to help explain these kinds of issues to families. Yeah, that's right, and, and particularly around um, explaining it in a way that makes it clear that the medical team is not going to abandon the patient and the family, that aggressive, curative, life-sustaining therapy may not be indicated anymore, may have nothing to offer, but that, in fact, we're going to still provide aggressive care. It's just going to be aggressive palliative care focusing on, on symptom management and assessment. Um, but um, but a lot of the time, and I know we were discussing this previously, that in, in intensive care, and I work in a surgical ICU, and maybe it's more common there, but there's a sense of mistrust and anger before I've even met the family because they weren't planning any of this. And I, I, I often get uh, that when even a discussion comes up 
that we may be prolonging the dying process. Again, trying to do what you recommend to discuss some of these palliative issues and discuss some of the ethical tenets. Even bringing it up can exacerbate the anger. And I was wondering what you would want to share with members of SCCM who may have run into these kinds of issues. Yeah, I think that that is a really important issue. And and when I go around and talk about this topic, it's probably one of the most common issue that people raise and one of the most difficult for me to be able to address. I think that once a family is angry and once trust is lost, that regaining that and getting back uh, to a place where you can do the kinds of things that we encourage people to do is extremely difficult. The, the easiest solution, if it is one, is not to get there in the first place, is to, is to try to work on the relationship and the communication early on and build trust before you get into this position. But a lot of times we're not able to do that for, for a whole variety of reasons. The trust may be lost you know, from the first minute that we meet the, the patient or, or the family. And I think the, the only advice that I've really been able to come up with there is that in sometimes in those cases, if we stop focusing on what we want to get accomplished, uh, which often is getting across to the family that ongoing life support is not indicated. If we stop focusing on that and rather focus on building trust and focus on building a relationship and, and, and building an understanding that we are on the same team, we're on the same side as the family because our ultimate goal is to do the best thing for the patient and acknowledge in the family that they are the experts at, the, at who the patient is as a person, the kinds of treatments that they might want or not want. That that's their expertise, and we are not usurping their expertise. If we focus on those two aspects, sometimes we can make progress and then get to a place where we can approach these things you know, through a relationship that's built on trust. Right. It's one of the areas that, uh, that is commonly dealt with. We're trying to make it that it isn't death as failure. That's something that right. I'm trying to focus on. Right. But, the, the, you know, the family that doesn't trust us isn't going to hear that. Right. Uh, and we have, to, uh, we have to work on that often first. I'd like to conclude this section, um, and we're, we're sort of nearing the, the last third of the interview, on your upcoming paper in critical care medicine. And, uh, again, I haven't read it since it's... Uh, hasn't quite been born yet, but uh, that you told me there were three behaviors associated with increased family satisfaction during uh, family conferences, and I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit with the members of SCCM. Sure. So in, in this paper, we, we again went back to the family satisfaction as the uh, assessment of, of quality or as one assessment of quality of communication and looked at specific things that clinicians did or said that were associated with higher family satisfaction. And as you point out, there were three, uh, and some of these themes are going to be familiar, but one was to assure that the family, assure the family that the patient would be kept comfortable and would not suffer prior to death, which is often an assurance we can make relatively well in the ICU. The second was to assure the family that the patient and the family will not be abandoned by the team prior to death. Uh, and then the third was to provide emotional support for the family around whatever decision was made. So not just to say, well, that's your decision, that's what we'll do, but to really provide them with support around that decision. And each of those three things was associated with, with higher family satisfaction. I, I thought we would end, I guess, by uh, in your article published in Critical Connections, you came up with a mnemonic, I guess, primarily to help teach uh, doctors in training value 
uh, the five-step approach to improving communication with families in the ICU. Did you want to talk about that for a couple minutes? It seemed like a yeah, very helpful this is, aid. This was something that was uh, generated out of sort of listening to these conferences and, and looking at what clinicians do and say. And it was a mnemonic that, that we think may be helpful in, in teaching this material. The V in value stands for uh, explicitly valuing things that the family says and, and, and explain to them that, that uh, that's really helpful to us as we take care of this person. The A is, is again, to acknowledge family emotions if they arise uh, during uh, discussions with them. The L is to listen to the family uh, and to try to spend uh, more time listening and less time talking. The U is for understand, to understand uh, who the patient is as a person, to ask families about what's important to them, what kinds of things do they like to do, so we know who this is that we're caring for. And then the E is simply to uh, elicit family questions, uh, often uh, multiple times, to make sure that uh, they don't have any more questions that we haven't answered. We've had the opportunity today to speak with Dr. J. Randall Curtis, MD, MPH. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and the director of the End of Life Research Program at the University of Washington. And personally, I could speak to you for the rest of the afternoon on all of these issues, and I wish you'd set up a 1-800 number so that people like myself could call in and discuss cases with you. You know, this is a very important area. You know, my initial thought, I was so excited to go over your papers and that there's a lot of style in it. You know, every physician, every clinician has to develop their own style. But nevertheless, I think what you've done to provide some sort of a paradigm has been very helpful. And literally reading over this helped me with a family conference I had to have the other day. I use some of your techniques, and we already get a family letter thanking us. So I really wanted to thank you personally. Well, thank you. That's really nice. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yep, you're welcome. This concludes our podcast, recorded Thursday, December 1st, 2005. To learn more about improving end-of-life care in your ICU, attend SCCM's conference, Improving the Quality of End-of-Life in the ICU, Interventions That Work, February 17th and 18th, 2006, in Miami, Florida. Visit www.sccm.org to register. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.